Welcome to the Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. First up on this episode, an exclusive interview with Michael Graydon, CEO at Food and Consumer Products of Canada, FCPC, the National Industry Association in Canada representing the food, beverage, and consumer products industry. We talk about how brands reacted to the shockwave of demand for food and household products, how retailers and their vendor partners came together to keep Canadians fed and take care of their new and essential needs, and finally a cautionary note around the challenges ahead of operating the COVID-19 era. Next up, Jane Gaynor, founder and certified coach Gain Your Edge Coaching, puts on a masterclass in the tradecraft of executive coaching, the key attributes of executive success managing through the COVID-19 crisis and beyond, crucial communication skills that help you manage teams remotely, and two starts and one stop on the road to being effective during the COVID-19 era. But first, let's check in with Michael Graydon from FCPC. Michael, welcome to The Voice of Retail. How are you doing today? Very good, Michael. Nice to be here. I know FCPC, and and you and I have met and know each other through many events connected to RCC. But uh, for the listeners, tell us about yourself, your personal, professional journey, and your role at FCPC, and about the organization itself and uh, its mandate. Sure. I've uh, I've been privileged enough to be leading this organization for the last four years. I uh, Moved here from Vancouver. I'm originally a Torontonian, but spent the last 35 years of my life in Vancouver and various roles, which, you know, it's very interesting. I think a lot of my career path was uh, was designed around sort of the culmination of coming together for the purpose of leadership at FCPC. I spent time in the restaurant business, um, spent time in food manufacturing retail buying groups, um, and then spent some time running a crown corporation in British Columbia. So I had some insights into the inner workings of government Mm -hmm. and how those things function. So when you sort of put all those things together, it it was just a sort of a perfect combination of career path for for the journey ahead with FCPC. Um, FCPC is a, a really interesting organization. One of the things that I wanted to do, though, when I took over was, one was to really try to narrow down the focus of the issues that we are spending our time on. I think we were just a little bit too broad and not deep enough in regards to the expertise and, and the value that we were generating for the membership. So we really tried to work to narrow the, that focus down a little bit. And the other was to grow the corporation, the organization, the membership. And uh, there hadn't been a real business development drive within the organization. And one of the things I've always come from the for-profit world and now being in the not-for-profit, I still needed a, a connection to my old world of, of mm-hmm. measures and metrics about growth. And so we we really undertook to grow the organization. And I think in the last two and a half, three years, we've added almost 70 members to the organization. And and we run at about a 98% retention rate. So it is all pure growth that's happened. And a real strong focus towards developing relationships with the small to medium Canadian manufacturers. Um, we, we virtually have every multinational large company as part of our organization pretty much. There's a couple out there that aren't, but the majority are. And, and it was really important to me to make sure that we got more geographic representation and we really did delve into those small to medium manufacturers because I think the regulatory support that we can provide as well mm-hmm. as the 
um, the relationship and understanding and thought leadership around the retail relationship is something that they just don't have within their infrastructure and support. So um, it was really a concentrated effort. And of course, in the work that we do in Ottawa, our membership is to a certain extent our currency. And when you can go in and talk to bureaucrats and politicians about our business, and it can be from the multinational and the impact on global supply chain to an organization like Judy G's in Calgary that makes uh, gluten-free uh, pizza dough. And and the, the dynamic between those two different size organizations is, is really important. So I think it's been very helpful in the work that we've undertaken. And I think the focus of the organization has also made sure that um, the, the programs that we get involved in, um, we're able to go very deep and be very succinct. And, and I think the result has been, you know, the respect level for FCPC at the bureaucratic and right. political level has enhanced quite significantly. Well, you hit on a couple of things that are so familiar to me with my work with the Retail Council of Canada, because we're, you know, the two associations are really two sides of the same coin in, in that, uh, you know, the 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 smaller um, organizations who don't have the resources, they're focused on being entrepreneurs and great, great entrepreneurs and founders just, you know, don't have the framework to even know what questions to ask and that questions can be asked of, of all levels of government with and through an association um, and have that kind of standing that um, that you just can't get as an individual. Yet your organization represents this broad spectrum, which, of course, is what uh, what the political side really likes to understand, right, that you don't just represent one constituency. So let's let's take that and, and put it in the current framework i mean you, you you know you represent such a broad range of, of manufacturers and goods that are putting products on shelves of retailers from coast to coast how is this diverse set of um, members for you and, and for us manufacturers come together during the covid19 crisis how, how have you and they as as an organization and as a diverse as a set of diverse group of companies come together and and draw, driven uh, focus or and found focus during uh, during the covid crisis so far well to begin with it came together in meeting the demand of retail and the consumer holy macro said last two weeks <laughs> in march was pretty incredible yeah. um you know the consumer hoarding and the panic that set in uh, almost in every category that we represent and they they responded incredibly well. And remembering, too, with some of them, you know, you needed to rationalize SKUs to uh, get those high-volume items out. Um, mm -hmm. Many of them had to reconfigure manufacturing because the uh, food service industry virtually collapsed overnight. And many of them have dedicated lines to those things. So not only was it an effort to... Um, retool the lines for the more consumer-oriented products, but also um, looking for opportunities to find a home for many of those already produced food service lines, and many of those went off to um, um, food banks and things like that. And the key where they came together, we, um, I think, has very much the same in retail. The number one focus was the safety and health of the employees and ensuring that the the plant operations to begin with um, mm. had the right measures in place, that the right equipment from a personal protective perspective was there, that the proper protocols were put in place. So we actually executed, we got a group of our manufacturers together and created a manual, a best practices manual in regards to operational practices, which we then shared with government 
government and and uh, and, and other organizations to to try to really ensure that all of the good thinking across our organization was captured in one document and, and that everybody had the opportunity to be able to be in a position to employ um, many of those best practices. Now it's evolved a little bit. And I think, you know, as an industry, we're coming together in regards to planning for the long-term future. Um, right. You know, the supply chain that we have is is very fragile right now. Um, there's many things that could impact it going down the road from a food perspective. Um, you know, here we are today and the federal government has announced new measures in regards to support for the agricultural community, but it came way short from what the ag community was looking for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a real challenge in regards to decisions that farmers will make with regards to this planting season, which is upon us as we speak. If they make significant reductions to planting, it's going to have an impact in regards to accessibility for product for processing that we'll require in the fall as we go forward. So, and and resourcing of that, and of course, the the Canada-U.S. border always going to be an element of volatility. It's uh, uh, we love our neighbors to the south, but oh my goodness. Um, Things are pretty strange. Well, it's the global, I mean, listen, it's the global hotspot for the for the coronavirus, right? I mean, you, you, it was encouraging that the government put the focus on keeping um, the borders open just for essential traffic. But as you said, down the road, it's just the simple things of, of, of how truck drivers can get back and forth across the border and make sure that the border doesn't suddenly slam shut in the middle of a transportation. It's just it's so stressful well, for yeah, all those reasons, right? Very true, and it's a very integrated uh, North American supply chain. So, um, you know, about fifty to sixty percent of the products that we see on our grocery shelves are manufactured in the United States or imported, majority from the United States. So, if that border was to close, our our supply chain would be. We just do not have the capacity from a manufacturing perspective in Canada to be able to meet that demand. So, it becomes pretty important. But a lot of the key packaging components, ingredients are coming from the U.S. as well. So I, I think it, it will likely remain okay, but it's interesting how, you know, the industry has come together in regards to ensuring, you know, again, the best practices it relates to distribution and transportation and free movement through the border. And I think the other thing that the industry has done, and it is remarkable, and it's really the giving back to the communities. And every day there is another piece in the news with regards to one of our members and the contributions they're making either in product or dollar terms to support the people in this country that are less fortunate than people like myself that are able to work through this particular crisis. Um, You know, the food banks are under tremendous stress um, and many community organizations on a mental health perspective are starting to get taxed as we speak now as we go into week eight of this situation. And so it's it's a real sense of pride from my perspective to be around these people that have made these conscious decisions to give back so readily. And it's all the way across the board. It's just been absolutely remarkable to see the support. You know, we had this and you touched on it. We had a, a period of, of peak buying, of panic buying, of, of hoarding. And it, it felt to me like consumers got their first glimpse across Canada of a little glimpse of what food and product insecurity look like. And, and they reacted going nuts and buying a, a lot of things. Now, we're, we seem to be past that in whatever this new, unusual 
business is unusual phase. What's your level of confidence that, that the, the supply chains as they exist and the manufacturing processes that are being put in place and the movement of goods is going to continue to be able to adjust in the months to come? We're not in this for the, you know, we're week eight, but we're, we're many months before, um, before whatever uh, this is comes to an end. What's your, what's your, what are you hearing from your members in terms of their fundamental reconfiguration of whether it's supply chain or manufacturing processes or or all those things in between you touched on, on farmers. But what's your, how are you feeling and how are your members feeling? Yeah, I think th- there will be a new normal. I, I don't think things will go back to the way they were um, as, uh, as we evolve through this time. Um, I think the supply chain is actually in pretty good shape. I, I think in many cases it was a function of cadence. Um, mm. We just far outstripped the capacity for a very short period of time. But when you think within sort of four weeks of that hoarding, we were pretty much back to normal on, on main key categories. Um, but as you go through it, you can see there are some potential disruptions. You know, we're, we're challenged within the, the meat industry right now with beef and pork and the challenges from the processing facilities and, and the impact that that will have. Um, we're still struggling a little bit on a packaging perspective. With all of these offices closed, a good mm. portion of the paper that we create in our business life is recycled into um, packaging. So there just isn't the same amount of recycled paper available for many of the packages. And as many of these organizations are taking um, the sustainability efforts very seriously, things like um, single or reusable plastics, reusable paper, or recycled paper just aren't as available. So we're having to go back to to virgin product for many of those things. And in some cases, it's just availability and sourcing because you've had a supply chain based on recycling for a long period of time. And then all of a sudden, you've got to rejig and work. So I think it's just a matter of... And I guess the the other shockwave, so to speak, was, and you mentioned it, referred to it earlier, is, is suddenly product that was being manufactured for a food service format needed to be reconfigured for a consumer format and the you know i I heard and maybe you might know that there wasn't a shortage of flour for example it was a shortage of flour bags in the in a consumer format kind of example right not just the the bags themselves but the formats just with so much consumption now happening uh, outside of what used to be the normal food service channel yeah no it's a big problem and uh you know when you go through in depending on the category, maybe six months worth of inventory in two weeks. Um, mm. It takes time for the packaging to catch up. So, you know, some of our members that are in the flower business have virtually uh, had white paper bags that had stamps on it uh, <laughs> to suffice for the short term period of time. But they also rationalized down what they made. You know, it was basically mm. all purpose flour because we all decided through this pandemic to become bakers again. <laughs> so, it's so funny. It's so funny to me. I was with Black and Decker during the days when the bread maker was the big hit, if you remember those days. And, mm. you know, you, you couldn't keep bread makers on the shelves. And I saw in some recent numbers that bread makers had like a 600% increase. And everybody, everybody's, a, everybody's a baker now. Yes. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's happened through this, and it will continue for a period of time, Michael, is really just the increased cost and the Mm -hmm. the cost of manufacturing. I think the whole element of social distancing will remain with us for an unforeseen period of time. And there are cost implications to that in regards to ensuring that the proper, you know, um, protective gear is available. 
because of social distancing, in many cases, the, the efficiencies and capacity of the plant is, is reduced a little bit. So you're not getting the same efficiencies. We're finding transportation costs are going up, and it's twofold. One is um, it, there's just always been a lot of pressure on the transportation business to begin with. It's been hard to find drivers, and, and so it's a very competitive business. But one of the other challenges are as we get to the retailers' warehouses, because there's so much, so many goods going into these warehouses, sometimes the truck will sit for 12 hours before it's unloaded, and that's an incremental cost to the manufacturer in regards to the labor for those drivers. So, And you're also dealing with a lot of, as I said, packaging and ingredients coming from the U.S., and with the Canadian dollar against U.S., the exchange rate mm-hmm. is, uh, is having a very significant impact on cost and that's it's interesting right that's been um you, a little bit out of sight i think for most consumers during all this right of course we have many other things to focus on these days but you're right that there's been a significant depreciation in the canadian dollar in the past two months right well i think we got camouflaged a little bit with the lower mm. um oil costs and and the impact right. of the gas right. pumps and we're experiencing you know 75 dollar gallons of gas now but uh yeah mm. the, the canadian dollar's lack of performance is 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 really having a significant impact. And again, if you're looking at 50 to 60% of the products on the shelf coming from the U.S., they're coming in U.S. dollars. So it's it's a real problem. It's nothing that's going to have a short-term response, but at some point as the Canadian economy starts to get back and rolling, hopefully some activity in regards to oil and oil manufacturing in the U, in the uh, prairie provinces because it does have a positive impact on our economy that will start yeah, to see sure. a bit of a normalization of the Canadian dollar because it's uh, it is really having an impact on on the uh, bottom line of many of these companies it's 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 so unusual because typically a lower gas price has this um, twofold effect in Canada generally not good for particularly the western provinces and the overall budget but then it's positive for consumers they're putting less money in the tank so they're spending more on discretionary or you know perhaps they're upgrading brands but you're not seeing that today because we're not driving as much so you're having you know you're having a, a one-dimensional not good um impact it's it's so interesting what's your advice sitting in the in the chair you sit in and, and listening to the members that you have what's your advice to retailers of all sizes and formats about you know how they should think about uh, working with brands and vendors during this the COVID era. Let's call it the COVID COVID nineteen era in the months in the months to come. Anything? What's your one or two top things that they should keep in mind or or um, keep perspective around? Yeah, I think um, there's no question that the relationship between manufacturing and retail over the last number of years has has decayed a little bit. There's not been as much discussion about category building and merchandising and growing the business. It's more about the whole procurement aspect of it and, you know, get to the bottom from a cost perspective. The COVID situation, because we were all very self-dependent on each other, um, that relationship changed a bit. And that relationship for a very positive, everybody 
bent over backwards to support everybody. Uh, many of the retailers were taking food service packaging so that they had inventories in the store, um, not as concerned about fulfillment and compliance issues, just get me what you can get me. And there was a sense of confidence that everybody was getting treated fairly, that if uh, I had 100 pallets, I was sharing them up based on the relationships that we had with the retailers before COVID. So it really got into a very good place. My, my advice to the retailers are don't rush back to the old ways too fast. And the cost implications in manufacturing right now are, are significant. And the supply chain is fragile. And if we revert back to things like compliance fines that require 98% compliance at this particular juncture, there's hardly a manufacturer could meet those expectations right now as they get re-geared back up, get their supply chains geared back up, um, get readjusted either to a world with not a lot of food service or food service coming back online. Mm-hmm getting readjusted to um, the challenges we're experiencing in the labor pool. There was 10,000 vacant jobs within the manufacturing sector prior to COVID. Unfortunately, some of the programs that the federal government put in place have really inhibited our ability to go out and attract people to the industry. Because in many cases... One of those uh, unintended consequences, right? Exactly. If you're unemployed, they were great, great programs. And, you know, I applaud the federal government for their compassion and empathy for people. But on the other side of it, it is, it's, it's almost a disincentive to get out and go look for a job at this particular point in time. Plus, you know, everywhere you look, you know, stay home, stay home, stay home. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I get the challenge to it, but I, I think the retailers really need to understand that the supply chain is still very fragile. And if we get into a situation where there are incremental costs through compliance requirements and fines at a time when there's just no hope of making those numbers. It will have a financial implication on these businesses, some of which will not be able to weather it. And because that the, the manufacturing industry, to a certain extent, is that fragile. So while many organizations have experienced volume increases, the margins in those products have declined. But likewise, many small to medium manufacturers have not enjoyed that growth because as the consumer went into the store and started to fill their basket, what traditionally happens is they go to the brands they understand because we're not shopping the store anymore. We're going in Mm. to fill a basket and that experience Mm. of shopping the store and exploring and looking for new things, we just want to get in and out. And so different. eh? And it is different. And it'll be interesting to see as we start to move forward, whether this social norm continues or whether we will get back to more exploring the store. And, you know, I think Mm. people currently are, it's almost um, deja vu for me going back to my childhood where I would go on a Thursday um, evening, every Thursday with my mom to the Dominion store in Richmond Hill, Ontario, and we would shop and fill up a basket or two worth of groceries and we went once a week. People are doing that again and uh, so that small to medium manufacturer who has unique products is going to have a more difficult time um, getting exposure. So the more that 
um, the retailers can do to continue to promote those products and start to look for opportunities to um, create presence. I think that will be very helpful too. But they're just uh, the consumer does not understand the complexity of the supply chain from the manufacturing to the store shelf. They don't understand yeah. that the price that they see in the store isn't set by the manufacturer. We have nothing to do with that. All done by the retailer. In many cases, we're not even involved in those discussions. So I think it's important that the retailers understand just from from the store back. It's still very, very shaky in regards to the foundations of the industry. And better that we think from a long-term perspective in regards to getting it, its health back. Because from a manufacturing perspective, it's critical that we have healthy retail. And, you know, we're very fortunate in Canada. The retail environment here is extraordinary. Our grocery retailers are all awesome. They do a great job. But we need healthy manufacturing, too. And if we evolve to the point where 80% of the goods are imported, um, that has a knock-on effect in regards to jobs. We're the largest manufacturing sector in this country. We employ over 350,000 people. There's more employees in our organizations than automotive and aerospace combined. Mm. That downward effect on the economy without a strong manufacturing sector will not be positive. Agriculture is impacted because we take 50 to 60 percent of the agricultural output. So there's there's a strong need in Canada for a strong manufacturing sector. So just give it a little time to get back on its feet and get sound and get its momentum and get its strength back before you start applying some of the old practices um, and, and that would be the number one advice. And I think there's a real opportunity for retail to take a leadership role here in regards to doing that and having some strong support. If, if the manufacturing industry deserves these things, then y- y- you have to apply them. That's why the compliance fines, with all due respect, probably exist today, is that we weren't as good as, a, as an industry in regards to fulfilling the needs of the, of the retailers. Mm-hmm. Right now, we can't. It's not that we don't want to. We just can't right now. So just give it a few months to allow stability to come back into the industry. Well, we've, it's great conversation. Thanks for, for making time. I'm sure you're you're um, quite busy. I wanted to let you know, or sorry, if you could let uh, listeners know how to find out more. We've talked about a wide range of things. You've referred to a couple of resources that the organization has been doing. How can they learn more about the organization and where can they go to uh, find those resources? <laughs> Yeah, we have a website, fcpc.ca, and there is just a wealth of information there um, mm-hmm. for uh, both our members, but the, the general public as well. And especially during these COVID times, there's uh, some tremendous information available uh, in there as well. And uh, our Twitter handle is at fcpc1. And for me personally, it's at mgraden underscore fcpc. I try to stay pretty active on social media and uh more than pleased to uh, engage anyone who would like to have a conversation in any of those social mediums as well. Well, Michael, thanks so much for being on The Voice of Retail. Great conversation. I wish I could say it's great to see you again, but it certainly is great to hear your voice again. Uh, And I look forward to actually seeing you in person uh, in the days to follow. So thanks again for joining me. Thank you, Michael, very much. I've enjoyed it.
Sylvain Charlebois studies food supply chains daily. On va parler avec Sylvain Charlebois, spécialiste de l'industrie agroalimentaire. Let's bring in Sylvain Charlebois. And joining us now to talk food security is Professor Sylvain Charlebois. Sylvain Charlebois is the senior director. Now joined by Sylvain Charlebois. Sylvain Charlebois is my guest. This is Sylvain Chalabois, and with our new podcast, The Food Professor, along with my co-host, Michael LeBlanc, from The Voice of Retail podcast, we'll dive into the recipe for the food, grocery, food service, and restaurant industries, discuss proprietary industry and consumer food-related research, check out fresh new ideas, and talk about whatever half-baked strategies are in the news this week. So be sure and join Sylvain and I every two weeks for in-depth insights and great conversation. Find The Food Professor online and subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you enjoy your podcast today. Okay. Jane, welcome to The Voice of Retail. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Michael. Thank you. Well, you and I know each other on a personal level, but I know less about your professional journey. And, and if you could share with my listeners a little bit about yourself, your professional, personal journey, and your coaching practice, Gain Your Edge. Tell us about it. Absolutely. So I spent many years in the corporate world and I started my coaching practice in 2013. And it was actually an interesting story. I actually left the corporate world and moved to the U.S. for a couple of years. And after some soul searching and a lot of exercises that at the time my mentor and coach had given me, I decided to open up my coaching practice because I had a coach in the corporate world and the experience was life-changing. And my goal in starting the coaching practice was for me to give back. I wanted to give other people the experience that I had had with my executive coach. So let's talk about the tradecraft. So how do you approach um, your clients and your business? And, and, and what's the process of being a, a, a professional coach? So in a, asked in a different way, what are the overarching objectives? They might, I imagine, differ depending on the client. But overall, what's your approach and, and what's your objective? Mm -hmm. It's a great question, Michael, because there's lots of coaches out there in the world. My premise is authentic leadership. And what I mean by authentic leadership is I want people to know who they are based on their values. So I believe that you are who you are based on your values and based on the experiences that you've had. As you become aware and more conscious of things, you start to make shifts or we call them pivots. And as you start to have different experiences, that also shapes who you are and being grounded in your values allows you to show up consistently, which is considered to be your authentic leadership style. You, you took the word right out of my mouth. I, as I was listening to you, I was reflecting on the word authenticity, right? That mm -hmm. How people can be authentic and, and live those values. Do you find, as you do that, do you, do you find that's the... A, there's breakthrough moments in that, or is that a, a guidepost that many people would recognize or, I, you know, what's, what's the mix of response and, and uh, approaches to that kind of, to your approach, basically. My motto is awareness plus action equals achievement. And I believe that you need both awareness and action to achieve your goals, regardless if it's a small goal for the day, a three month goal, a legacy goal it is really important for you to gain awareness. So to get that clarity, get that confidence and make the choices that are aligned with your values. And once you have that awareness, then it's time to take action because having awareness and not taking action, you're not moving forward. 
And then there's a lot of people who take action, but they don't quite have the awareness yet. And that's when I refer to it. That's a lot of misplaced effort because you're taking all this action and you're frustrated because you're actually not achieving what you want to achieve. You're not getting the results you want. You can't understand it. I'm working so hard. Why, why am I not, you know, achieving my goals? Correct. Hmm. Well, let's, let's talk about the current day. I mean, let's pivot as you would say in a different context um, for your new and, and potential existing clients. And let's reset to the current COVID-19 crisis. You know, I was thinking about our interview and, and it's often the case that many people have professional, personal challenges, professional wins, personal wins. It's such a, a unique event. We all run out of adjectives that it all happens together. It's all happening together now. So how have you seen your your approach, your, your, your tradecraft change, if at all? And, and what approaches are you taking to help clients through, you know, as I said, pretty much uniformly at different degrees, just stressful for everyone in one way, shape or another. It's, it's such a unique time. Tell me about that. You know what? I, I think you've got the key word there is that it is such a unique time. If there is anything that I have learned as I am speaking with clients in different cities and different countries This really is a global situation that is affecting all of us in some way or another. What I have learned to respect is that every one of us is having our own unique situation. We are having our own unique experience. And what I mean by that is, you know, home, staying home, working from home. Are you set up to work from home? So the self-isolation, working remotely, et cetera, are you living by yourself? Are you living with a partner and now you're together 24 seven? I have a client who has been working in his car every day because his Mm -hmm. wife is home with three children and they don't have the space in their home for him to work. What I mean is everybody is really having their own unique experience in this. So I need to show up consistently being authentically me and meeting them where they're at. And that makes no difference meeting them where they're at in this current situation or meeting them where they were at a month ago or a month from now. Being a coach is meeting your client where they're at, being open and curious, holding them capable because they know their life and their situation better than anybody. So a coach provides that safe space and asks questions for them to gain the clarity, for them to then make the choices aligned with their values and make choices to show up being authentically them. So you really, I can see, flexed your your style as, as I guess we all have in different ways, shapes, or forms. And, and I mean, off mic, we were talking earlier about um, the choices that you make and just how you phrase or uh, position uh, what you're going for. Like I'm stuck at home versus I'm safe at home. Like that's a simple a simple one you said, but it's very powerful at the same time. How are you finding the, the clients, set of clients or folks who are reaching out to you? How, are they, how do you find on the whole that people are dealing with it? It's just a, a mixed bag, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. if there's any one or two kind of things that you, you feel are consistent, is that, the, is that the advice that you would give or is that, you know, what advice are they seeking? Mm-hmm. I love the conversation around choice. And I want to make the distinction between making choices and making decisions. If I revert back to my old life, I made decisions every day, lots of them at home, at work. I made lots of decisions every day, but I never believed that I had a choice to create and live the life that I wanted. And so working with individuals now and really empowering them to realize that every decision that they make 
they do have a choice. And I'm going to tell you many times people say, well, Jane, I don't have a choice. I have to do this. There's lots of shoulds. There's lots of expectations. There's lots of people living for other people. And I was one of them for 40 something years. So I get it. And I, I have lots of compassion for people who believe that they do not have a choice. I love that aha moment when they do realize, oh my goodness, I do have a choice. And even a simple example is I often say, I choose to be happy. Now that doesn't mean that my life is perfect. And depending on the day and the moment and the month, I have bad days and bad weeks, as I'm sure we're all experiencing different things right now. The key is I choose to be happy. That is my choice to show up with that energy. And that is the lens that I get to see the world from. Yeah, I I was having a discussion with someone, a gentleman named Dan Pink, and he was talking Mm -hmm. about framing just in the way you're framing it in in a different context he was saying you know i people say listen i gotta go work out versus i get to go work out it's what you're saying right it's basically a simple mnemonic but it really reflects a, a different perspective right and that's what um what you're talking about is these different perspectives let's let's pivot from there use that word twice in the same interview let's pivot from there and go beyond the personal and you know, I talk to retail leaders from coast to coast, and it's such a unique position. Some, of course, are, depending on their format or they're leading in person, but many uh, where their stores are closed uh, are find, having to find new ways of communicating with their teams and, and new ways of, of, of leading. Um, how do they find the right tone to do that that reflects both their own personal perspectives, the knowledge, as we've been talking about, that everyone's under different degrees of stress. You never know what people are going through all the time, but how do they, what's your, what's your advice to retailers listening or the the folks who are listening about, you know, communication in, in, uh, in this, which, you know, this isn't a short term phenomenon. This, this COVID thing is going to last for, uh, for many, many months. Uh, So you really, it's a good time to start thinking about these things, right? Absolutely. It is. There's uh, a webinar that I've actually been hosting quite a bit lately, and it's called finding your new unnormal. And I'll, I'll say that again. It's the new unnormal capital U capital N because people keep talking about this new normal. And I think there's things that we're actually kind of excited about that we're doing differently that we want to continue even when self-isolation is over. Uh, I'm cooking more, for example, I, you know, exactly. cooking more, discovering new recipes, just to pick a, a frivolous thing, but still it's one of those things, right? Exactly. The family time, the slower pace, right? We're so used to running our kids around to all of these activities and all of these pressures that we put on ourselves and it's us putting it on. Society has put it on. So this slower pace, I do believe there's going to be lots of new habits and new behaviors that are going to form. I hope that we keep the good things. I hope these things that we are learning right now and we are enjoying, I hope we keep them as we start to develop what our new unnormal looks like. And the reason I use the term, the new unnormal, because believing that we're going to go back to a new normal, I don't feel sets us up for success because I think we've all had different experiences. I think we've all had challenging times for a variety of different reasons in life. And it's almost like you go through a challenging time and you've got your feet back on the ground and you're like, okay, this is my new normal. And then all of a sudden the floor drops out again. And again, we're adapting to this change and building resiliency. 
And then again, we get to a place where, okay, we're good, we're solid, we're grounded. And then the floor gives out again. So this idea of this new normal coming sets us up for something that when it does happen to crash again, we're not prepared for it. So how do we continue to build the the common word now is resiliency. How are we building resiliency? And the way I describe resiliency is your ability to bounce back or adapt positively to change and everyone can do it. And the cool thing is you can gain resiliency. You can build resiliency. The ironic thing is you have to have a challenging time to build resiliency. So those of us who have a lot of resiliency, we may have had some challenges in our life. (laughs) Um, And you know what, that's a really good, you know, even to pause there on a personal note to say, Mm. those of us as parents, we try to protect our kids a lot. Or those of us as managers, we try to protect our employees, because we don't want them to feel the pain that we may have felt in that situation. I try to create that space to have people see that it's okay to allow people to fall down or to fail, whatever language you want to use, but give them that supportive space so that they can grow and learn and build resiliency in a safe environment. We all have a process. We all have a process for adapting to change. It's anywhere from three to five steps. And once you know what your process is, I really encourage people to own it. Know what your process is, because if you can live it more consciously, you can support yourself to get through it quicker and therefore bounce back quicker. And that's really kind of a cool thing to do. Yeah, it's great advice. It's great advice. All right. So two starts and one stop advice to listeners on how to be effective in their professional lives during the the weeks and many months ahead. So start, start doing these two things and stop doing this one thing. The two starts, my number one has to be, be authentic, be you. And what I mean by be you, understand who you are based on your values and be aware of your audience. Because often people say, well, Jane, I can't be authentically me. And the way that I would describe that is, I'm sure you can tell I'm a bit of an extrovert. So when I am facilitating, it's great that I can bring all of this energy to a facilitation. Yet, if I'm on a one-on-one coaching call with a high introvert, if I show up with all this energy, I am going to come across as intimidating, overbearing, and that person's going to shell up. So in that situation, I still need to be authentically me, yet I need to show up with my energy maybe at 50% or 25%. Right on, right on. So be authentic and be aware of your audience. And... I think the second most important thing is being very aware of your perspective. And in addition to being aware of your perspective, how willing are you to see someone else's perspective? And so if you can imagine my two hands are up in the air, if you're seeing something in the middle and each one of you is on either side, you're both seeing that same thing from a different lens, different perspective. What is your perspective and how willing are you to walk the 180 degrees to the other side to see it from a different perspective? It doesn't mean you have to agree with that person, but how willing and open are you to see a different perspective? So authenticity, empathy is basically what you're talking about, that kind of 
you know, I, I can kind of put myself in your shoes for at least a little bit. All right. So what, what's the one stop? Stop doing this that you, you hear all or you see all the time. If people could stop doing this one thing and make a big difference, what would it be? Mm. So the word that's coming to mind is judgment. And I'm going to say judgment of yourself and judgment of others. I often encourage people to be curious because if you're curious, you're not being judgmental. So how do you stop, pause and reflect and be curious? And I mean, genuinely curious, not asking a question and knowing the answer or expecting a specific answer, truly having that open mind and being curious that you don't know what answer is going to come because sometimes you can be quite surprised what answer comes when you're not expecting it. So be open. Jane, this has been great. Um, tell me a little bit about how listeners can get a hold of you or learn more about you and, and your practice. Absolutely. So my website is www.gainyouredgecoaching.com. All right. Fantastic. I'll put a link to that in the, um, in the notes for the, uh, for the podcast. This has been, this has been great. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, adds such a, a valuable perspective, uh, to the, uh, to the listeners and, and as we all, uh, deal through and, and work through uh, such an unusual, as you said, uh, such a unique time. Uh, once again, thanks so much for being uh, my guest on The Voice of Retail. Really appreciate you joining me, and, and I wish you uh, a safe uh, weeks and months ahead. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you for the great conversation. Hi, it's Kent Allen, principal of the Research Trust and co-founder at the Global E-Commerce Leaders Forum. Very excited to announce the latest extension of the Global E-Commerce Leaders Forum events, the Global E-Commerce Tech Talks podcast. In partnership with Jim Okamura, Scott Silverman, and host Michael LeBlanc, we'll be debuting and discussing custom proprietary research designed specifically for global e-commerce retailers. We'll be talking to e-commerce industry leaders around the world to help us sharpen our saw blades when it comes to doing business across borders. Check out the one-minute trailer episode available now on Apple and Spotify, plus all the major podcast platforms, with episodes debuting every two weeks. Well, all right. Thanks to Michael and Jane for being my guests in this episode. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple iTunes, your favorite podcast platform. Please, please, please rate and review, and be sure and recommend to a friend or colleague in the retail industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of M.E. LeBlanc Company. You can learn more about me on www.meleblanc.co or, of course, on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a safe week.